Most bands adopt an attitude where it's us against the world. All for one, one for all. They're a band, but they're also a gang, a team, a posse. No outsiders allowed. When the band goes on tour, a lot of war and military analogies are used to describe the experience. Tours are campaigns, the fans become the band's army, new fans are new recruits, new rangers, and the chanting and singular purpose of live shows become rallies. When experiencing this phenomenon nightly, far away from home, many performers return shell-shocked. The scene at the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy is about as accurate as I can relay here. When the four main characters come back home having vanquished the evil threat and saved the world, nobody around them seems to care very much or even know what they went through. The four characters shrug their shoulders and carry on. In the beginning, that's the feeling I got when I'd come home from tour. When we had managed to slay crowds abroad and were slowly achieving some sort of success, it didn't carry much weight back home. Trying to tell everyone what I had just experienced was next to impossible. Try convincing your roommate that you had just played with Metallica and Motorhead at a festival that close to 70,000 people attended when he sees you having trouble making the rent. There were a couple of times when I excitedly recounted road stories. I'd look up and see friends staring at me like I was a lunatic. I definitely got my share of raised eyebrows and doubting glances. And as the years have gone by, I've realized there is an unconscious bartering that happens when you start to tour. The more a B-level band like our band achieves success abroad, the more likely the band's regional home popularity will decrease, simply due to out of sight, out of mind. This is fine by me. I'm more interested in touring and seeing the world and seeing how far our music can take us than getting a nice write-up or a nice plaque from my backyard. No disrespect, but I feel that being able to woo an audience past social, political, and cultural divides is the true test to see if your music is robust, resilient, and genuine. But I'm not above feeling the sting of domestic indifference. When the music industry is already predisposed to attracting big egos and insecure temperaments, getting snubbed can be a source of exasperation. And there aren't too many people in a similar position to commiserate with and derive support from. Of course, often the answer to quandaries like these are staring right in front of you. And while recording our new album at Vespa Music this past fall, we would often start each day's session riveted in conversation with... Harry Hess, Vespa music owner and lead singer-guitarist of the million-selling international rock act, Harem Scarum, not to mention lead singer in mega-metal local heroes Blind Vengeance. Harem Scarum's discography goes deep. 14 studio albums, 7 live albums, 3 EPs, 8 compilation best-ofs, 3 DVDs, whoa, Platinum and gold discs that line the walls of Vespa music are proof enough that Harem Scarum is a beloved act abroad, but the scales don't tip as equally at home, something I can empathize with. What I admire about Harry is how these little knick-knack distinctions matter little to him. He is someone who has maintained success in the music industry through every fad, every phase, and in multiple fields since he was a teenager. A teenager singing for Blind Vengeance. How cool is that? 
Through it all, what maintains is his level-headedness and blunt pragmatism, and the ability to toss off a heavy story that can still manage to keep a group of us, veteran road dogs, spellbound and entertained. Name almost anyone, and Harry's got a story that involves them. It's what got me to invite him on the podcast, as you will soon hear. That and the fact that he's a great dude, who, by the way, lent his vocals for a track on our upcoming new album, where he sang backup because he was the only one who could hit those notes. A big shout out to and thanks to my old friend and fellow Black Coffee Brigadier, Brendan Canning who helped out with this episode, and there has been a promise from both Harry and Brendan to appear on a future podcast episode together, something I look forward to as well. As always, this podcast is supported by Blue Mic Microphones and Skullcandy Headphones, and if you could please leave a rating or a review on the iTunes store, it would be much appreciated because it helps the podcast's profile. In fact, we made it onto the What's Hot section on iTunes, so... This kind of reviewing and rating really does work. Anyways, here's Harry Hess. He's this episode's guest on the official Danko Jones podcast, and it starts now. The Danko Jones podcast is the best around. Nick Flanagan is Danko's co host. Hello for free. I'm so glad I like to stop. Jimmy in from Fox. Stop playing. Hang down. Yo, motherfuckers. You like Kiss? I love fucking Kiss. Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley are the fucking shiznit. Man, and I also love my punk rock too. You know, that fucking Henry Rollins is a badass motherfucker. You know who else is a bad motherfucker? Danko Jones. That OG lay down that pimped out podcast like no other. He loves his Kiss and Black Flag. I mean... I love that fucking Danko Jones podcast. And if you don't like that Danko Jones podcast, go fuck yourself. The Danko Jones podcast is the best around. Nick Flanagan is Danko's co-host. Download for free on SoundCloud and iTunes. Sometimes Damien from Fucked Up stops by and hangs out too. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Get ready, because the Danko Jones Podcast starts! Hey Harry, how you doing? It's great to have you on the podcast in your studio. And we're surrounded by um, a lot of equipment, top-notch, top-shelf, state-of-the-art equipment. But we're here on my laptop doing this on GarageBand, <laughs> doing this uh, uh, podcast episode. Um, and um, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. I was thinking the other day, we have known each other for 17 years. That's right. And uh, thanks for thinking of me. I'm happy to be here. Uh, we are at Vespa Music. Um, this is Harry's studio. We've done a lot of recordings. And in Canada, we've done probably our, uh, the one song we're most known for in this room, Bounce. It's the one th- song that people always ask in Canada. Never mind that we put like 20 singles after that all over the world. But it's we're that, that take your clothes off band. And we did it here. So 
That's right. And yeah. and I do uh, remember that you guys were the first band to record here um, after I bought it. So I thought that was kind of cool. And every time I hear it on the radio, and I still do hear it on the radio to this day, I think of that. So very cool. How about the other 2019, uh, 20 uh, singles? Uh, no, those I, those no, I don't hear. No, no I'm no. just, I'm, I got to be honest. I, <laughs> I thought you guys were dead. I mean, if I'm, <laughs> yeah. If I'm, um, and that's kind of like uh, a thing about you when I think about, that frustration um, sometimes when d- being in Canada and dealing with that mindset with people is I think about you because you were in, well, Blind Vengeance, Harem Scarum, and, and then eventually Rubber. But Harem Scarum in particular had uh, success in Canada for a while, but then reached to- levels of success beyond that internationally. And you, we knew that a lot of the you know musos knew that, um, but you know generally speaking in Canada you led a double life and I sometimes look to you when I get frustrated, and you have some sort of every time we come here you kind of hold court in the front room and kind of you know quietly cool my nerves maybe JC's as well with your when you you know regale us with your stories of harem scarum do you feel that. Um, it's, yeah, I always say it's my best talent is standing by the coffee machine and talking shit and not actually doing any work. And I think it's kind of, uh, I've really, yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've walked into that, you know, kind of, uh, role, I guess, in my life of where I, I kind of enjoy coming to the studio and I'm not joking. My favorite part is just coming here, hanging out with bands and talking because, it used to be the other way around where I was a guy, you know, either in the control room working while I'm listening to all the bands holding court with each other. The managers come, the label people and all that, especially back in the day. And I always found it so interesting to hear other people's perspectives on not only their own careers, but what they're going to do and how they're going to go about doing it. And I've literally heard it from not hundreds, but maybe thousands of bands, you know, over the 18 years that I was here and I was at phase one studios before that for five years. And that's where I met Eric Ratz. And so between the two of us and the projects that we've worked on, I think it might be in the thousands by now. And, um, I, I love that part about the the music industry and people that are, you know, uh, that have been doing this as long as I have and you have, I mean, you, you kind of go over those hurdles and where you go, well, you know, I expected it to be this, but now it's, it's acts and I can live with that. And you people that have found a way to move forward working um, in whatever capacity. So if it worked for you internationally, you embrace that and you keep going with it. And if it worked for you domestically, then you found a way to do that. It's weird when you live somewhere and it doesn't work at all and you're not popular or it was at one point and you're not anymore. And you got to get on a plane to go do a gig. And that's basically has been our lives for over 15 years, and uh, quite honestly, we're 100% fine with it. I mean, there isn't one bit of me that goes, oh, I wish I could go to Wawa and rock it up there. At the, you know, which, no insult to any Canadian place, but if we're being honest, I mean, Canada is one of the hardest 
countries physically to tour. And doing it all, I've, I've noticed that. I couldn't help but notice the distance between uh, uh, North Bay and, and Thunder Bay, Bay. Yeah, all the yeah. bays. There's too many bays, people. And so, and when you're in Europe, you're like a 45-minute ride from one country to the next, and you're in major centers where there's millions of people, not hundreds of people, but millions of people. And um, typically, there's a lot of rock fans. And uh, a lot of those countries as well in Europe and Asia, they, for some reason, they see, if they like you, they kind of like you for life. And where in North America, again, being honest, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. it, it's a bit flavor of the month, a bit what's on the radio. And for us, the tides really turned when, you know, Nirvana came out with Nevermind and anybody that was doing anything that resembled what we were doing uh, was either dropped from the label or or just kind of, you know, shoved aside and not played on radio. So we were lucky that we got uh, a lot of international attention. And by our second record, I think we were out in 52 or 53 countries. When on our first album, we were out in three countries, two or three countries. And so... We just got lucky, and um, if that hadn't have happened for us internationally, we we wouldn't be, well, we wouldn't have had a another twenty years out of it. So, that's the thing is, I mean, we've both of our bands, and you obviously on another level, but both of our bands achieved for a while homegrown success enough where you know you would be recognized if you walked down a certain street, and that was you know kind of new and then nice and then. It faded for both of us, and for other people, it never, it never. There's there's never success in other countries. So for for you, your success internationally, you were telling us that you'd get off the plane and there'd be people waiting to get your autograph at the airport. That's the kind of level you guys had achieved, like in Japan yeah. and other places. So it's just so it's just such a black and white life from that level of success to coming to back home to Pearson and then just going, um, oh, it says you're a musician on your landing card. <laughs> I've had that where it's, you know, you just, your last show, it was like, you know, for us, like maybe 1,200 people and the, the, the encore and all that and the, the after party was, yeah, yeah. And then it's like, oh, you're a musician? What's your band? Never heard. Never heard. The the officer says never heard, and and uh, it's it, obviously you've had uh, uh, enough time to deal with it and the success abroad. You know whatever whatever it is helps you your your ego. But I mean, how does your ego take a beating when it initially starts happening? Like when you initially start going, you know, everyone's got that moment. No matter how douchey it sounds, where you you do think to yourself. Do you know what I just did? You, fu- you know, like that kind of, you yeah. know, how did you deal with that when it first came? Because you're obviously very centered and grounded now. But I want to go back to when Harry Hess was <laughs> like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> um, I've, I've always kind of be, been pretty practical about all of it. And I, and I think that's part of the reason why it never really worked for me on a certain level. Because right. I never got up on stage and, I, and believed that I was that guy. I just did this because I loved writing songs and I loved recording and making records. So I was 
I was kind of thrown into the guy and like singer and band for for all the wrong reasons when you think of it from a live perspective. Like I never wanted to be the guy on stage and be the center of attention. I, I still don't like it and and don't want to do it. I only do it because it's it's a you know it's a necessity if you're going to be in a band, you got to go out and play your songs and and do all that thing. And there is a part of it that I really really like and enjoy, but it's it's. Uh, yeah, I mean, just to give you some idea, I mean, like I, I would get up on stage and I would feel that it was kind of a joke to me that I was even up there. Right. And I think that people saw through me and they saw that, uh, I could hide it well when I had, when I looked the part because people didn't question it as much. But once I cut my hair and I looked like I could have been an Ottoman salesman or I could have been an accountant, then, then it was really obvious. And so it, it's always been a bizarre thing to me. Like I, I used to joke, like we could write a handbook on how to how to fail and how not to go about, you know, uh, becoming popular and have a career. Like I mean, we changed the band name, we changed the look, we changed the direction of the music almost from record to record. We would throw fans off the trail as quickly as we would get them, and in any real. Uh, pursuit of any kind of success, you don't do any of the things that we did. So it speaks to how naive we were and also how we were just left to our own device to do our own thing. So uh, the positive to that is, is that we, we always did what we wanted to do. We never recorded a song that we didn't want to record. We always made the record we wanted to make. Um, and you know, to our own detriment, we were just left to figure things out for ourselves. We didn't, we, uh, our manager on our first three records was just a guy that we met, um, you know, like a friend kind of thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then a lot of young bands do that horrible yeah. mistake of like, Oh, that's our buddy. He thinks we're cool. Yeah. You know? And it was a bit more than that. Like he worked, <laughs> I worked at the Warner music warehouse for two weeks in the summer and I met him uh, there. His name was Andre Bourgeois, who later on went out to, you know, manage a, a few more successful acts. But at the time, he was just our peer and didn't know anything more than we do, which is a kiss of death if you're looking for a manager is to have a friend that doesn't know any more than you do when you're 19 years old. So we end up getting this record deal with Warner and uh, and off we go. And nobody that was there, like our A&R guy, it was his first A&R gig. And so everybody in our camp was just like, I don't know, I don't know. So we just put out records, and like I said, luckily it went well internationally, and then we figured it out. And, you know, we started making money at this when we when we didn't have a crew and a team, and we were just doing it ourselves. And then we would just, you know, make the records, go out and do tour dates uh, in countries where we were doing well, and they liked us, and they would pay us well. And that cycle continued on, well, actually to this day. I was just in Japan last month summer and did uh i think 15 countries in europe uh two years ago so we're still able to do it not that we any of us really want to but we like making the records and we like going out and hanging out with fans and having a good time but um it's a weird lifestyle as you know so we just um we just kind of do it on our own terms and it doesn't make a lot of sense but i think when you look at anybody's career there's there's no real path 
to, to tell anybody to follow. So uh, although I can say we never had anybody telling us what to do, I think that you can't do that anyway. You know, you can't mirror someone else's success because if you could, then that's what everybody would do. They would go, hey, you do this and this and this and you will achieve this. So it doesn't work that way, as you know. And I think a lot of, you know, just blind luck and, uh, you know, hopefully there were a couple of songs in there that, that I guess our audience is liked enough to, to, you know, to uh, give us the time of day and attend the shows and, and follow us for, for years to come. So um, it, it's two sides for it to me. I go, I, I think we're extremely lucky in one sense. And then on the other side, I go, yeah, we, we never released a record in America when it was very important to at that time. And um, we were, we were just, just doing our own thing and with with no plan like no nobody telling us hey this is what you need to do to get ahead so um we were just kind of like head down and doing the work which you know that's only one part of it you need the other side too to really make it work and we didn't have that i think a lot of the the your peers at the time in your genre of music had a different w- approach, a different work ethic to what you guys now that I now that I've heard your stories seem to have done. Um, there was a lot of you know party first, work later, and it seems you guys maybe it's a Canadian thing, but you guys were in this genre of like heavy rock or hard rock in the eighties into the nineties where. It was all about partying and it was all about telling everyone about girls and partying and, and drugs and booze and alcohol. And I'm not saying you did or didn't do that, but um, behind the scenes, you didn't really, it seems to me, didn't really play into that whole persona and and um, fantasy. Am I right? Well, yeah, you know, in the beginning, I mean, again, when we were younger, uh, yeah, we did do all that and it was fun. But to me, there was always a limit to it, you know, and the work did come first. There was no doubt about that. I remember sitting, um, you know, on Saturday nights, you know, writing songs when I knew everybody else was out partying and having a great time. And when you're 19, 20, yeah, yeah, um, it was just more important to me, to be quite honest. I, I was... I had no plan B, and this was what I was going to do, come hell or high water. And it was so important for me to learn the craft of songwriting and recording, and I just wanted to do it over and over again. And that's why I started recording other bands, because it wasn't enough just to work with the people that I was working with. I wanted to learn, and I did learn every time I worked with someone. And so I, I love doing that and still love doing it to this day. Um but that, that was it for me. So that was kind of my high of, you know, being in the studio and accomplishing something with either us or another band or whatever project. And, yeah, I mean, there, there, was, there was lots of uh, debauchery on the road after we'd done the work, you know. Right. So there, there's a time and place for all of that. I mean, and, and I think you're right. A lot of other bands put the image and the, the, the train, the rolling train wreck first. Yeah. They go, okay, let's go out on the road. Let's, you know, the debauchery, the, the drugs and whatever like that. And then just hope that that's enough. We you know, write some songs, guys. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Twelve months later. I mean, I don't know if you know the story, but like when we first started doing this, I put this band together as a recording project. So when I was, I think, 18, um, 
started writing songs and recording them. We recorded and rehearsed for one year before we even did one live show. So we had a, a complete CD done when nobody had made a CD. I think we were the, the first indie band to ever make and put out a CD. And when we took that to Warner, they were very impressed. They were like, oh, my God, you, you have a whole CD finished of original songs. And a couple of them actually made it on the final record. But that... That's when we started writing and working with other people. And I thought I was going to just be a songwriter. And so the band thing was just a project to kind of get that thing rolling. And so I started going to visit publishers in Toronto and writing with local writers, like successful writers, but guys in Canada. And then uh, they would send me on writing trips to like to New York, some publishers and things like that. And um, it, it was just yeah, it was a great experience. And that's, that's what I was trying to achieve. And, you know, the band thing kind of happened alongside, we got a record deal. And of course, you know, we pursued that and, and, and still kind of do to this day, but it, it's, it's been a mix of, you know, of motivation and, and developing skills. And it's n never been about just one thing. It, it kind of starts with the songwriting and branches out from there. And if you're writing songs, and you can sing them, I guess you can be in a band. And you can also work with other bands. You can also write songs for other artists. You can you can do all kinds of things. And I, I loved, you know, learning everything about the music industry. And I've kind of worn all those hats over the years. And I like figuring it out and doing it. So, yeah, it's kind of been my thing. Well, you say that you originally wanted to just be a songwriter or write songs for other people. And then eventually the band kind of became its own thing. But what, what was there a moment where, you know, like some guy with a cigar goes, kid, you got to you got to be under the lights, you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah, I guess, you know, it, it's it's a weird thing because we never felt like we were doing well and we never felt like we were going to do well. And it's because um, of our of our personalities. We're, we're all kind of like that. There was never anybody in the band that had a quote unquote ego. We knew we were good at what we did and we, we still do. And I think the guys that I work with are great musicians and really good at what they do. We all feel that about ourselves and each other, but never portrayed ourselves that way, which might, might be a problem. You know, I'm 48 years old now. And if I were to work with a band or people that I thought wanted to be rock stars, I would have to think that they actually believe they were rock stars. And we, kind of didn't or I didn't I will say I'll Did talk about myself to that though like from the outside you know what I'm I think I think uh I think it's a part of why it didn't work like on a on a on a really grand level like a manager I'm, or a label guy was like this kid I think so I think so you know but um I'm not really sure. Nobody ever really tells you why they don't want to be involved with you, right? You know, like they, they just move on and it never happens. And uh, so, you know, for me personally, I, I kind of always looked at this as a strange job that I didn't think was going to last. And we never did well enough from record to record. Like, you know, it sounds like a lot of numbers. Now, we sold well over a million records, which sounds great now. But at that time, that wasn't. Yeah. You know, like if we put out a record and we did 80 to 100,000 pieces around the world, kind of a disaster yeah. from, from a label's perspective. Because of the money that you were spending, you're making videos, you're getting tour support, you're doing all these things. 
there's no way you're ever going to make that money back and make any money off this. So we were getting the smallest budgets out of anybody that we knew making records. We were getting around $100,000 to make records, which was just, oh, my God, how are you going to ever make a record? So that's why that's why we ended up doing it ourselves, you know, um, buying more studio gear, uh, spending more time in our own studios because it was out of necessity. But really, at the end of the day, it couldn't have been better because we got to learn how to make records records by trial and error we we could hire and work with quote unquote professionals and we learned from working with them and that is um you know probably the best thing that ever happened to us is that we were kind of right in the middle of here's some money here's enough money to work with some pros but you're not gonna be able to hire mutt lang you know so you can't just sit on the couch and let him do all the work you're gonna have to jump in you're gonna have to record your own backing vocals because no one's gonna sit through this right you know we were trying to do these giant you know Def Leppardy sounding records or whatever or we were trying to be queen and uh, the studio time alone would have been a hundred thousand dollars just to record backing vocals and I'm not joking at the time I'm not joking so because you couldn't just bust open your laptop and record a bunch of vocals you couldn't do it Um, so we were um, in a, in a transitional stage of, you know, uh, the world of analog and digital coming together, but still no professional was making records like in a home studio or on a laptop. So we were trying to buy professional gear with the recording budgets and make a lot of the records ourselves. And by the fourth record, I think it was, we were doing everything ourselves. So it was a great learning experience because once you can take that skill, you can keep using it over and over again. And that's what I did my whole life, making records for us and other people. So... I, I'm very, very grateful, actually, that it went the way that it, it did. But when you think about it, if we were more successful and had more money, I wouldn't have learned what I need to kind of continue the rest of my life and career in the music business. Right. So failure was very good. <laughs> <laughs> but even there, you, you know, you, you're very self-deprecating when you come to the studio. And maybe some of the younger bands fall for it. But we, you know, we've been around the block we know what Harem Scarum's done. And uh, even when we drop any band or any person in music, whether it's like a new name or an old name, and for me, especially like the older names mean more to me, they're more juicier to me. Um, any name, you've got some, you're like the Kevin Bacon of Canadian rock. You've got a story that connects you to that name. Um, and uh, the, the, what prompted me to stand up when we were out the couches the other day and just stand up and just look you in the eye and just go, Harry, you got to come on the podcast and tell the story you were about to tell when we were talking about me and Eric, and I think Rich was there, we were talking about Slayer. I was showing the guy some picture of Slayer. And then you go, <laughs> I've already told the story like to two people <laughs> since last week where you're like, do you know this guy, Carrie King? And we're like, yeah, he's in the band we're talking about. Yeah, I hung out with him in Japan once. And then I just stood up and I said, Harry, you got to come on the podcast and talk about the time Harem Scarum hung out with Slayer. Because, I mean, for, for people who are even into rock, they've forgotten or they don't know that back then, those camps were separate. And yeah. to the public... Yeah. They hated each other, you yeah. know? Yeah. So yeah. what is that about? Well, actually, um, our, our A&R guy at Warner Music Japan, a guy named Kuni Takauchi, 
was a, a, like a ripping guitar player right. back in the day, right? So he went to L.A. and started his career and worked with everybody because... I don't know. A lot of these Japanese artists would come over. They would typically go to L.A. and uh, they would hobnob with all the guys of that time. So he knew everybody. And then once he wasn't a musician anymore, he got into the industry side of it and was a publisher at Universal for forever. And then he was at Warner Music Japan. And so he knew a lot of industry people and he knew all the musicians as well so one night we were at the hard rock cafe in tokyo and we would hang out there a lot like because we would spend months there you know like in japan and um cooney or our guy he introduces me to this guy who happens to be playing a show and he says this is my friend carrie this is harry and we start talking i had no idea who he was He was this burly looking biker dude looked like he would kill you yeah. the sweetest guy in the world we chatted for hours we we ate we drank and just hung out, which is what we would do when we were there. And, um, yeah, that, that was my story. And then later on, uh, you know, the A&R guy, Cooney, he's explained to me, he goes, yeah, he, he's in a band and like, he's a guitar player. Like, but that's kind of the thing, you know, at a higher level, like, you know, these guys, they're, they're very inconspicuous. They don't walk in the room and tell you who they are. You know, it's just kind of like you either know who they are. And if you don't know who they are, they kind of like it, you know, they kind of like not being, I don't know, just treated differently, I think. And so I think he probably found it very refreshing that none of us acted any differently around him or or whatever. So because he was totally normal and totally cool. And we just chatted and 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 hung out for the night. So so that was great and, and fun. You yeah, you were in a band. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we wouldn't have been with that A&R guy or whatever. So he knew he may have not known a thing about us or heard of us or whatever. A lot of people when you meet them zone. yeah i mean you pretend you go like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah i mean you hear that all the time and i'm thinking there's no way you know who we are <laughs> you meet these people and they're pretending they know who you are it's like yeah but we would go on a tv show in japan and they're like it's like oh um well sammy hagar is on in front of you and i was like so chat with sammy hagar for a while you know and just and you guys bonded because you're in japan you're too sure 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 yeah i mean we did shows um you know we did this 20th I, or maybe 20 or 30, 30 year anniversary from Burn Magazine, which is the big magazine in Japan. And, you know, and uh, with Mr. Big and Motley Crue and like, you know, so you're standing backstage and, you know, with Nikki Six and I, you know, I said something to him about his tattoos or whatever. And he, you know, he was laughing and like, I, yeah, I can't say what I said. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, and then, you know, Vince Neil was pulling a sock and wouldn't come and do the show. Meanwhile, they flew to Japan to do a show, and they were fighting. And just to kind of be around that and see it going on, it's pretty funny. Right. Pretty funny stuff. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, I would I would go to Asia a lot and do stuff, and I kept running into the Mr. Big guys, like Eric Martin or whatever. And they were doing so well in Asia because they would have these ballads that would literally, like, sell six million records for them and stuff like that. And so they were kind of like the prototypical band of like, hey, they've got nothing going on in North America anymore, even though they had that huge hit to be with you. Yeah. And just went to Asia and I mean, killed it. And I mean, like these guys were doing like Budokan and like wow. just selling, selling, selling and, and just doing a, you know, having a bang up career and still do to this day going to Japan and Asia yeah, and like pockets of Europe. Like yeah. A few yeah. Years yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a different world. And, and if I'm being honest, like it almost feels pretend sometimes because you think, well, it's not real. I mean, we're just going to this place and we happen to be popular here. But when you're there, it feels very, it's real to them, but it's, it's not so to us. It's, it's not yeah. to us, honestly. Like, we just go, we do it, we go, well, 
fucking weird, man. And we come back. Right. That's it. Because there's just no, there's, there's, there's nothing happening at home. That it, yeah, or, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know what, I mean, I don't know what I'd be like if it were like that everywhere. everywhere. I, I don't think I'd be any different, to be honest, because they don't buy into any of it. Like, what's there to buy into? You do the work, you put out the songs, you you get an audience or you don't. I mean, I don't see where the ego part comes in. I, I don't see where the I'm a genius part comes in, any Canadian, of that. Canadian. I think that's very Canadian. I guess, yeah, but I don't... Look, if I thought it helped, maybe I would pretend to do it, but I don't even think it helps. Because we were just talking before we started this, like the Tom Petty, um, you know, uh, documentary that... I mean. I don't really see a bizarre ego attached to him. There, there's a self-confidence. There's a, I know what I'm going to do and nobody's going to get in my way kind of thing. And I have that as well. But there isn't like, I'm a fucking genius, everybody look out attitude. And I find that's a lot of, a lot of amateurs that are pretending to be that person act that way. But a lot of the pros that are that way don't act that way. It's like an attitude, too, as well. Like, I mean, we used to tour with Foreigner, you know, like and, and in Canada, actually. We did a bunch of dates. And, I mean, they've sold hundreds of millions of records. Nicest guys in the world. And when you just, I mean, I went to McDonald's with those guys. Like, literally, you can imagine walking into McDonald's with Foreigner. And, this you know. before iPhones because. Oh, yeah, 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 for yeah. sure. Yeah, this is like 1993, I guess. It would have been maybe 92, 93 yeah. or something like that. And, you know, just fly on the wall while these guys are having conversations and one of the conversations was about doing this show and at the end they were like um yeah maybe we'll we'll get uh, maybe we'll get a uh, hundred grand each out of it and they were like you know what fuck it uh, we don't want to do it it wasn't enough you know like just to give you an idea of how well they were doing and how wealthy they were and here i'm some guy i've got 50 bucks at this point in my life and i'm like holy shit you know this is unbelievable and they were so humble yet so rich and so successful um you know the guitar player uh produced like you know van halen records and like you know what yeah mick jones did 5150 yeah yeah very very popular in his own rights yeah yeah. I thought Ted Templeman did that. No, not that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, like just you know, just who's the new guy? Who's the new singer? He's amazing. Um, I'm not familiar with. Is it Kelly Hansen? I, I think, think that's. Yeah. Yeah. yeah great singer. He yeah. looks like. I mean, like. Yeah. Where have you been for like 25? <laughs> yeah, years? and I think he was he was around and yeah. playing in bands and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. I know that because I'm yeah. not a big foreigner guy, but we played with them. Mm. Uh, like. Three four years ago with, right. with Def Leppard. Oh, okay. And yeah. Foreigner just blew me away because yeah. of him. Yeah, I, like, I didn't know yeah. they were this yeah. like this. You know. Yeah, and we we played with them back in the day when Lou was like right. in fine form. Like to hear Lou Graham singing "Jukebox Hero" and you know, pretty amazing, pretty yeah. amazing stuff. Yeah, because he's the original guy and everything. And uh, but yeah, I mean, like I kind of you know came up at a time where bands like Def Leppard and White Snake, I mean, those were the bands. I mean, we did, you know, a Via Rock Festival in Belgium, you know, uh, on a festival with, and, and I'm sure you know this as well, they throw together these weird festivals. I mean, we played, I think, before Type O Negative. Like, can you imagine? Like, literally, people throwing beer bottles at our head. And then White Snake is the friggin' headliner, you know? Like, just weird 
pop rock, metal, really heavy metal, and like bizarre shit. They would throw them all together in a festival. And like crowds in Europe, I mean, like they, you know, I think they're more tolerant probably than ones would be in North America of like a mixed bag of festival. Uh, Harem Scarum playing but, with typo negative yeah. here. Yeah, we it would wouldn't just be, be beer bottles. No, yeah. it would be like, yeah. Yeah. did you be yeah. rushing the stage? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Just kill them. Just With fucking Rome? kill them. Yeah, just fucking kill them. Well, it was funny for us too because we, we, you know, we made a couple records that were pretty dark and you know, detuning and whatever like that. We could actually put together a set based on what, like, what the crowd was and kind of make it actually work a little bit. We could do a pop set of like, you know. This is total power pop, like yeah. 45 minutes. And then we could do like a pretty grungy, dark Alice in Chains kind of like 45 minutes as well because we've done, you know, what we're doing our 14th record. What album know? was that? The Dark Hair oh, Scare? Voice of Reason. Voice of Reason. Yeah, very bizarre, weird record, which kind of uh, alienated a lot of the fans that like the poppy, you know, melodic rock side of what we did. So, was that you know, pre-Rubber? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That, that was album number three. I think Rubber was six or seven or something like that. Right. Yeah. And I mean, Rubber, you know, because, you know, uh, melodic hard rock or whatever you want to call it was not going to get played on the radio yeah. in the mid 90s. Uh, it was over. But we were signed out of Canada. So we were signed out of Warner Music Canada. We had a world deal, but every territory would decide whether they released a record or not. And a lot of times, if you weren't doing well in your home country, they weren't really interested in hearing the story because um, back then it was like, well, let me know how you're doing. And, of course, it comes out in Canada and, well, there's nothing to tell. Well, that's not good. Yeah. So they would think. So we were already doing well in a lot of Asian uh, territories and pockets of Europe. So we didn't have to sell them on anything. But, hey, how about America? How about the U.K.? You know, the, literally the two biggest markets – Warner never released us in. It wasn't until our deal with Warner was over. We, we had a seven-album deal with Warner, and we actually finished it. And we were one of the few bands ever in Warner history in Canada to finish our record deal and go, all right, see you later. <laughs> and, I, you know, in retrospect, we should have stayed, you know, yeah. because Warner Music Japan was so great for us that, you know, not having the affiliation with Warner anymore... Right wasn't great in our biggest territory, which was Japan, because now we're an indie band. But what happened was we became popular in the UK. We became popular in territories where Warner never really wanted anything to do with us. So, again, it, it, it's so hard to know, and you don't know until you look back five years after, did this work or did it not, or, or who even really cares? You're just putting out records in 2016. There's really no borders. You're just like, you have your fans are around the world. There are pockets everywhere. You go play, and hopefully you do well enough in every territory that you go play that a couple hundred people show up. Mm -hmm. That's really our career now, you know? Like if we go, you know, if we go to Spain or Portugal, we can do seven, 800 people, a thousand seaters or something like that. Uh, but if we're in Munich and Germany, we can play for 250 people, which is weird because when we were with Warner, it was one of our best-selling territories. Japan, we do well, obviously. The other Asian territories, it's just spotty because they're, they're hard territories to get to, to play, and continually build an audience, you know? So, you know, we have a gold record in the Philippines, but we've never been to the Philippines. We've got offers to go, but we're like, well, we can't go for nothing. We can't go and lose money. And you can't put together a tour. You could do one date. Mm -hmm. To fly to the Philippines to do one date... You know, we were like, well, you know, we'd need 15 grand to go make that work. And that's tough for a promoter. So 
it's it's a weird weird career of like okay well we're doing well enough but we're not we're not over that hump of like we can just do whatever we want and continually do it we're we're still a slave to some sort of a system of like hey you know like there's a promoter here they want to bring you over but you know mm-hmm. we'll give you 200 bucks to go play in Belfast you know i'm like yeah can't do that and a lot of other bands would because that's what they're doing for a living and that's their career and they stay on the road and they keep pounding away and and I get that and if I was 19 years old I'd probably do that you know just go travel and live in a van and and that would be it so down by the river well you know Dan Hill's got um a big career in the Philippines but I don't know if he has a band that he brings oh he goes over yeah, he's like a huge star in the Philippines, yeah. like huge. But I'm I'm wondering if there's a backing band. Like he's he's kind of like I think it's kind of like a DJ where you know you could just travel and with a band you got to get your crew and you're yeah. the guys yeah. and the, it's yeah. a big to do. Yeah, I mean I would go and do promo tours and I mean like I. I I'd be like in Singapore and they'd be like, oh, hey, just go down with the piano and play a song at right. this club or whatever. And like, what the fuck? So I'd go down there. It's like literally like 700 people in a club. They're not there for me, but just for, you know, just for a bunch of different things going on. And there was like, you know, a dance artist. And then I get up there and I do a freaking ballad on a piano. And, you know, uh, in the Philippines, what was weird is that when we released a song called Honestly and... Uh, it went number one in the Philippines. It was number one for six months. Then they released a second single, and it was also number one for another six months. So we had the number one song in the Philippines for an entire year with these two songs. And it was so popular that over the years, when they would do like uh, Idol, X Factor, oh they'd God. always be doing these songs. Oh Check it out on YouTube. No, there were, there were winners of Idol that put the song on their records and the records went platinum and stuff like that. So I was like, well, I wrote that song. Like, shouldn't I be getting something or whatever? And like, you try and like, you know, dive into it and figure out like they're platinum records, number one hits or whatever. Like literally like, oh yeah, here's 1500 bucks. Like go shut up because you're not getting anything out of us, you know? And this is like major labels, major publishers, but there's a lot of territories in the world, especially, um, you know, around that area, like the Philippines, Singapore, Taiwan, where you could sell a lot of records. Like we did very well in Malaysia and Indonesia, Indonesia, was huge and we had number ones top tens and stuff and just yeah you're not going to get any money out of all the records you've sold and stuff like that we've like had hundreds of thousands of records of uncollected mechanicals uncollected royalties because by the time we went to figure it out and do it like just nobody could make heads or tails of it it's it's quite funny but um, I'm glad you have a sense of humor about it well you know again like uh, we're, we're doing well enough like Japan um pays the highest royalty rate out of anybody out of any territory in the world and because of uh you know the canadian dollar was very weak uh at that time compared to the yen and the u.s dollar so we'd go over and play we'd do really well we'd get our royalties from japan we'd do very very well with that and when you're selling records and you know if you're selling a million records and you're getting a buck 50 a record you're doing okay you know so a lot of times when you're not you know, when you're looking at the whole thing and you're thinking, well, this could have another zero on it at the end. At, at the same time, we could have nothing like like 99% of all the other musicians that we know that, again, probably way better than us at what they do. We're just doing it and we're having some sort of luck 
at it. So I was always grateful and happy about that and always trying to move it forward. But at the same time, it's, you know, never released a, a record in America, you know? The way you've approached <laughs> this whole thing. So, I, I, I mean, I know we've got a certain amount of time. I can, I still have three other questions to ask you, but Go ahead. I'll, I'm going to throw it. Less. I'm going to throw it to the the shadow co-host of this particular episode. It's he is basically your number one fan, and I think you know who it is because he's a good friend of mine. Yeah, yeah, and he, yeah. we're going to, sh- I'm going to show you just how much of a number one fan he is. It is Brendan Canning from Broken Social Scene. So yeah. when you agreed to be on this podcast, I immediately emailed Brendan and I go, Harry's coming on. And Brendan's, he was our very first guest on the podcast. Oh, okay. He, okay. Our very first guest. He's been on three or four times. Yeah. So here we, and then he writes, I go, and then he writes me back. And the first line is, oh, I go, do you got anything for Harry? He goes, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> That's what he wrote. Okay, so I guess this is just like bullet point thing. Yeah. You know, I, you, you've done interviews like this before sure. where they go, all right, I'm going to ask you a bunch of bullet points. What's your favorite color, red or blue? But Brendan's questions go deeper than that. Oh, so good. here we go. Yeah, I like this. Super yeah. deep. First one, who is a better bandmate, Daryl Fratura or Darren Smith? Um, well, a Darren Smith is always... Uh, it, it, oh boy. Yeah, Darren Smith has always been like this crazy nut job. Uh, there's someone that is a rock star that has always been trapped in a band that never became a rock star. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Do you still keep in contact with Renata Fusik? And then in brackets, she was on the first Blind Vengeance album cover. Uh, she is a Facebook friend of mine. I have had. Uh, I have no interaction with her, but I'm happy to know she's uh, alive and well. <laughs> okay, Brendan wants to know, how did you fund the first Blind Vengeance album? Um, we actually, um, we were funded by uh, like an independent, there were a couple um, and they were, what were they doing? They were selling memorabilia, like t-shirts and things like that, like at flea markets. And they had a... Uh, like a store, like a retail store in the Ajax Mall. And so our drummer at the time, a guy named Cam Gowdy, walked in and was buying like probably some studded wristband that he was going to kill somebody with. And uh, it's like, oh, you're in a band? Obviously, the way he looked. They got chatting and he said, yeah, I'm in a band and we'd made a demo. Oh, yes, we'd made a demo. And they were like, can we hear the demo? So they listen to the demo. They like the demo. And they say, hey, we would like to manage you guys. And who better to manage a rock band than people that sell T-shirts? Yeah. Right? Right? And we're like, fuck yeah. Uh, yes. And they're like, we're going to hook you up with Bob Gallo. And Bob Gallo is a legendary record producer. And Bob Gallo, we worked with him. We made our first record. And I'm condensing this story. There's a lot of weird shit in the middle. But anyway, we end up making a record with Bob Gallo here in Toronto. And Bob was well known for his work with Bo Diddley. He like produced 16 Candles, uh, 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 like legendary stuff. And he kept saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, when I, when I worked with the Beatles, and we're like, worked with the Beatles? Like, is he, he's full of shit, right? And then many years later, remember when the Beatles put out that, like, uh, it was like a, like a book, right? Like a coffee table book kind of thing or whatever like that, right? And, and then I'm looking and I see, oh, well, look, here's Bob Gallo and 
pictures with the Beatles and stuff like that. Anyway, oh, wow. so we we worked with this legendary producer when we made this first record, and it was it was quite horrible. I thought the Blind Vengeance record, and I was 15 years old when I sang on that record, wow. and it was a trip. And then later on, Attic Records put it out, and we were the first band I think signed to uh, an offshoot, a metal offshoot of Attic Records called Viper Records, and I think they put out like Thor, yeah, um, Razor. Razor, that's right. Look at you, and uh, a bunch of like local, crazy rock bands, and so that was the beginning uh, of my career. Yeah. Well, then that goes into the next one. Was signing with Viper Records a step yeah. in the right direction? I would say. I'd say doing anything, yeah. you know, at that point. I mean, if you're 15 years old and you're getting to make records and you're working with quote unquote professionals and. It's a professional label. You know, you're meeting A&R guys. You're figuring out what's going on. You don't know anything. Uh, I think from that perspective, it's awesome. I mean, the record didn't do anything, but it's still funny how people mention it, you know, 30-something years later, 33 years later. Yeah. Well, Brennan's a huge fan. And oh, so so I don't know what this question's, I think, more, more lighthearted. Do you still feel like a mannequin? <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah. What's your fondest memory from playing Zodiac One Roller Rink? Uh, I think Mike Turner, Marlady Peace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ajax Pickering. Um, Wow. I do remember it. And um, yeah, fond memories of doing that. I think Mike Turner was in one of the bands who ended up starting Our Lady Peace. Because Mike was a buddy back then. And we were all kind of living around the same area, like Oshawa. I've known Mike for 25, 30 years. Yeah. Oh, way, way. I mean, Crash Karma has been a recent project that he's done with Edwin. and Yeah, Yeah, but that's what he did after OL. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, so when was the last time you sang Midnight Maniac by Crocus? Whoa! Yeah, probably 1985, 1984. He's referencing the time he saw this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would have been like Ajax Community Center, 1985, maybe... Maybe, yeah. Maybe even earlier. Maybe 83 or something. Yeah. Okay. Is Jim Knight still working at Canadian Tire? <laughs> I don't know any of these questions. But yeah, I think, uh, I, think he, I think he lives in New York and is quite successful. So we used to make fun of the guy. So, okay. yeah. So there we go. And then the last question is, can you get my copy of Anthrax's Spreading the Disease back from Darren? I guess that's an inside thing. I can't get anything back from Darren let alone my dignity. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. We got to, wait a minute. We got we, we to gotta end on a lighter note. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we can't just no, go. That's, that's a good thing. And then just like fade. Yeah. fade. Um, but um, but uh, no, I mean, it just proves to you like uh, how, how much of a, I mean, Brendan's gone on about you in the podcast episodes we've done. With- we used to hang out when we were like 10 years old. Like, uh, I think, I mean, I think it was around like that age. 10, 11, 12. So, yeah, he's gone on and done well. I'm I'm very happy that he's done well. And Yeah, yeah I, I mean, thing. yeah, I was on tour once, and I turned on the TV on the hotel in the hotel, and there he is on Letterman, you know? Really? Like, yeah, I felt I so proud. That. Yeah. See, see, broken good for you. Good for you. But, uh, but I'm sure he's done, like, countless other things that are pretty heavy. He throws... He throw like yeah, this happened and this happened like it ain't no thing. Right. right. Once again, very, very Canadian, Canadian. <laughs> but it's really heavy stuff. So really, yeah, That's I'm awesome. very happy for him. Yeah. And we used to live together for four years. Oh, you're yeah. kidding. But um, you know, it's uh, six minutes till we officially start 
our session today yeah. in your studio. So I'm going to just say we can probably do a five-parter with all the stories you have from, like, bands that no one outside of Ontario would know <laughs> to, like, right. bands that the whole world would know. You have yeah. you have a connection or a story about so-and-so. And, in fact, we mentioned some name from someone that was on the, our podcast before. It was... Didn't put them in the good best light, but you had a story about it that was totally fucking hilarious. But anyways, these things, you, you've got like tons of them, and I just wanted to hear a few of them, and plus your way through the music business. It's it's um, something that is worthy of maybe a book in the future. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll need you to write it, but uh, thanks, and uh, we'll just we'll do it again then. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, we'll. we'll uh... Have to do a part two. Sometime. I want to do a part yeah. two. This yeah. turned out we'll awesome. Yeah. yeah. And maybe can I bring Brendan or no? It's I'll just bring him. Can bring him. All right. Yeah. Then that's it. Brendan, you know it. Here's the invite. <laughs> We're gonna do it. And he's gonna do it. He's probably well, gonna I call wanna, me. I want to hear what on what on earth is running through his brain to think that there's any reason to uh yeah. If yeah. he's thinking <laughs> that some dude connected to you and Canadian tire after all these years. Yeah. This is bizarre. Yeah, we gotta bizarre. we gotta open that brain up and yeah yeah well well thanks harry thanks for being on the podcast thank you all right we'll do it again